0: Please rise now for the reading of God's Word. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 73, reading verses 1 through 17. Give all your attention now to the reading of God's holy revealed truth. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Now turning your Bibles a little different scripture here instead of a second Corinthians, if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 12 starting in verse 5 through 11 of Hebrews 12. Here again the word of our God. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This ends the reading of God's word, and let us remember that all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, But the word of the Lord abides forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Let us go to our God in prayer once again. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can return to our consideration of Psalm 73 and what you have to teach us here regarding the prosperity of the wicked and the plagued lives of the saints. We pray that you would teach us and instruct us so that our faith may be strengthened and that we might not stumble and slip because of of doubts and unbelief. Have mercy upon us in this, Lord, we pray. Fill me with your Holy Spirit to speak your word that we might be fed and strengthened now. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been considering this story or testimony of Asaph, a Levite appointed by King David to lead the worship of Israel, In this Psalm 73, his testimony shows us a temptation to Christians that we all may face in this life. It is the temptation to doubt God's goodness to his people when considering the prosperity of the wicked and the chastening of the righteous. And again, I'm drawing heavily from David Engelsma's book, Prosperous Wicked and Plagued Saints. And we saw Asaph make a strong declaration in verse 1 that truly God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. Israel being God's regenerated elect, his church, his people. But then Asaph says, but as for me, he says he almost stumbled and slipped. And why did that happen? He says that he, that happened because he observed The prosperity and easy lives of the wicked. And last week we looked at that prosperous life in verses four through 12. We saw that the prosperity, that prosperity increased their evil in pride and ungodliness, leading to a practical atheism of sorts and an oppression of God's people. This seemingly blessed life of the wicked was troubling enough But it is what we shall consider today in verses 13 through 17, the seemingly cursed lives of the godly that really put Asaph in a dark place. We shall consider these earthly troubles and plagues upon God's children and then where to find the solution to this perplexing question. Why do the wicked prosper and God's people suffer? I'd like to reread verses 13 through 17. That's our text for today. Again, remember, Asaph had just vocalized, if you will, written here, all that the prosperity of the wicked and their easy lives. He described that in some detail and how what that resulted in, in terms of the oppression of God's people by them and their seemingly blessed lives. That seems like God is blessing them. But then Asaph says, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. So Asaph, again, is, this is his testimony, remember. And this, uh, is written for our instruction and for our edification in the faith, because this is a temptation that all Christian believers may, may have at some point or another in your lives. You know, that you have troubles. And you're observing those who are not following God at all and have seemingly blessed lives. And this problem seemed to be an insoluble problem for Asaph. He just didn't know what to make of this. He said, when I considered it, it was too painful for me. I I can't wrap my mind around what's going on here. Until he went into the sanctuary of God. The problem is solved only in the sanctuary, where the word of God sheds light on the end of both the ungodly and the godly. He also says that he had pretty much come to the conclusion that maybe I should just throw in the towel. You know, I've I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. What good is it all? What, what it's, what, where has this gotten me other than just misery in this life? And so as we see him stumbling and almost falling, he says, we must keep in mind that during that despair, God was still holding him up. God was still preserving him, causing him to persevere in the faith. So there was a ray of light in this darkness of Asaph's doubt of the goodness of God and the despair of the value of serving God. He says that he deliberately refrained from saying this to others, though. He says, if I had, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have been untrue or unfaithful. To God's children. He loved the children of God and he did not want any of them to stumble and slip as he had been. If he had vocalized that, if he had complained to others and, and, and made that a, you know, you know, a, a narrative of his life and proclaimed that he, would, he could have caused others to slip and fall as well. But he kept it to himself. And this shows that he was still continuing to wash his heart in the process of sanctification. He was still a believer. He had not completely apostatized or anything like that. And also that shows, again, God's preservation of his saints in the midst of these trials and tribulations. And that second aspect of the occasion of his struggle was his own painful troubles. And of course he said of the young godlies that they're not in trouble. They have an easy life. Things seem really smooth sailing for them. Now the brevity of the account of the troubles of the godly in comparison with the lengthy description of the prosperity of the wicked must not lead us to minimize the severity of the troubles of the godly. Now he only uses a few words when describing the troubles of the godly but we went through eight verses showing the prosperity and easy lives of the wicked but that doesn't minimize the troubled lives of the saints He says that they are plagues plagues are destructive evils inflicting untold misery He says, all day long I've been plagued. And we might think of the plagues that God brought upon the land of Egypt. Ten plagues of God's judgment upon the people of Egypt to deliver the people of Israel. We might also think in history, to the 14th century, the great bubonic plague in Europe, which it's estimated that some 50 million people died. We might think of the Spanish flu of 1918, where they estimate between some, somewhere between 17 to 50 million, even up towards 100 million people died around the world because of the Spanish flu. And then, of course, we all just lived through the pandemic of COVID-19, where many people died. We don't know how many, <laughs> because I think there's a lot of shenanigans going on with the numbers of deaths. But we do know that people died from that. And it was a plague. You know, microorganism, you know, we think of, again, all of these plagues are somewhat associated with uh, bacteria, microorganisms, and so on. So for him to use that word plague is full and pregnant with meaning. You know, he just didn't say, well, I was having a hard time. But I was plagued, you know. Every day. And the troubles of the right, the righteous are also, he says, a chastening, which is a beating or whipping. Now the severity of the troubles is indicated by their duration and repetition. He says for all day long. Now I don't think he was just saying from sun up to sundown. I would count into that the entire 24 hour period, and then chastened every morning. So there's a duration, which we could use the phrase, you know, it's 24-7. And then the repetition is every morning. No breaks, as it were. Now we have to realize, though, that this might be somewhat hyperbolic language in the sense that the saints do have times of gladness and pleasure and smooth sailing, right? We can all confess to that in our lives. Yes, we have these constant troubles, as it were, this chastening, but we also have some good times in our lives, right? Which we can be thankful to God for. So it's not completely constant in our lives that all we know is negative affliction. Thank the Lord that He does bring you know refreshing rains and the sunshine and good things into our lives, prosperity of, of measures and so on that we can rejoice in. But the meaning of this phrase is that there are always troubles. There's no let up, no relief. One trouble follows another. There are troubles in youth, troubles in middle age, and troubles in old age. Some of these troubles are so intense that the pain of them is with the child of God constantly. And even though the event that caused the misery might be in the past, the painful consequences and disturbing memory of that event may continue, uh, and on and on it goes. But every morning anew, the child of God awakes To the prospect of some new trouble for that day. Or with the lingering effects of an old one. You know, you might get up in the morning, the phone rings, and what do you, what do you say? Now what? Anyone ever experienced that? Or just me? Now what? You know, you think of Job. Event after event after event. Before the one person was done saying, to, telling him a, a calamity has occurred, another one was running in the door saying, now this happened. And then again, and, and this happened. And now and again, and this happened. That's what our lives may seem to be like. One thing after another. With a little bit of mixture sprinkled in there, some times of relief, if you will. But now these troubles do have the purpose of tempering our enjoyment of the pleasures of this life. So even though God will bless us in that way temporarily, those troubles help keep that in perspective in that we must realize that we are just passing through this life. We are on that spiritual pilgrimage. This is not our eternal home. And so we must not fasten too much upon those, those pleasures and those enjoyments because again, this is not, this life is not it. We're looking forward to that which is to come. The new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells and there is no pain or suffering and so on. Now the troubles of the righteous in Psalm 73 are not spiritual difficulties. But they are the occasion of spiritual difficulties. But they themselves are not spiritual difficulties. And what I mean by that is what Psalm 73 is about is the earthly circumstances of human life. Just as the prosperity of the wicked is physical health, financial wealth, success in farming or business and earthly ease, so the plaguing and chastening of the righteous are sickness financial distress, poverty, setbacks, and even failures in business, farming, labor, family problems, and earthly unease. But they still may cause or be the occasion for a spiritual difficulty, and that's exactly what we see happening to Asaph, is that he began to doubt God's goodness to his people in the midst of those trials and tribulations. Now, these troubles, we might ask, well, where do they come from? And, of course, anyone who is a Christian believer reads their Bible, and particularly in the Reformed uh, tradition or faith, knows that these troubles come from God. God is the sovereign governor of his creation. And Asaph knew that. Asaph knew who plagued him and chastened him just as he knew the cause of the prosperity of the wicked. Not for one minute did he stumble in that idea or doubt the sovereignty of God over the evils of his life. That was not his problem. His problem was exactly that he knew it was God who was destroying his life, whipping him, as it were, all day long, and yet then observing the prosperity and easy life of the wicked. Unfortunately, there are people even who are confessing Christians, even confessing to be in the Reformed faith, who try to solve the problems of, of evils in human life by denying God's sovereignty, by saying something to the effect of like, and I heard this after 9-11. You know, people, church people, church leaders were saying things like, well, God had nothing to do with that. You know, those planes and the destruction and all of that, God had nothing to do with that. Well, that creates an even greater problem if we have a God who is not sovereign over evil in life, because then he's not God. Then we have a, what might be called a godling, which is an idol of the, the unbelieving nations, a false god, the, not the god revealed in the scriptures, that he is sovereign over all things and, and nothing can thwart his purpose and plan. Denial of God's sovereignty over the evils in human life certainly rules out, though, the possibility of our ever viewing those evils as divine blessings with a good outcome. And that is the comfort finally afforded to Asaph in Psalm 73, which we'll see later. So God sent the troubles which plagued and chastened Asaph, but the troubles We're not direct judgments against specific presumptuous sins in Asaph. Because if it was, it would have, the Bible would have told us. God has no problem in the scriptures, as you know, revealing the sins of his people and why they get into trouble and why God brings temporal judgments to their lives. We could spend the next hour going through the scriptures looking at example after example of that so we know that, that that's not the case here for asaph these troubles that he was talking about wasn't because of some hidden wickedness in asaph that god was was purposely judging him for for that but you know we know that's true that if as a christian believer and and this relates to the topic of Christian or church discipline that I talked about earlier that if we commit sin and stubbornly walk in it that then God's hand of discipline may be heavier upon us the blows might be heavier and and, and more severe to wake us up out of our lethargy out of our sleepiness out of our continuing in a sin that we know he is uh uh, calling us to repent of, turn away from, mortify, that we might cleanse our hearts, our hands, in that process of sanctification. That sanctification, which he mentions there, that his uh, cleansing his heart and his hands, is that process of sanctification that all Christian believers are involved in from the day they are regenerated to the day they die. And it's both inward and outward. Inwardly, we consecrate ourselves to God in thankful love to him as the God of our salvation. And outwardly, with our hands, we serve God by deeds of love for him and for our neighbor. Having that clean heart, as I've mentioned, is because of the regenerating work of the spirit of holiness. But despite... That godliness in Asaph or in us, heavy blows still fall. These troubles were his lot in contrast to the prospering of the wicked. And by virtue of their severity and duration, the troubles were hard enough to bear by themselves. But knowledge that all the while he was suffering that, the ungodly had no troubles, but were always at ease, that made his experience almost unbearable. It seemed as if God prospered his enemies and plagued his covenant friends. Now the reality of earthly life and its circumstances then becomes the occasion of this powerful and dangerous temptation to the godly believer. And this temptation is more powerful really than any other temptations that we might face. Temptations to pride, temptations to setting one's heart upon riches, temptations even of sexual lust and immorality. Those can accomplish what this temptation can do, and that is to incline us to cease from cleansing our heart and washing our hands. In other words, to give up on the Christian life of holiness and discipleship, becoming bitter and despondent, so this temptation is grievously dangerous because of that spiritual danger the prosperity of the ungodly and his own contrasting troubles says contrasting troubles with regards to the circumstances of earthly life are again the occasion for the believer of giving up on god where he says you know What's the use of it all? In vain, he says, I have washed, I've cleansed my heart and washed my hands. That word in the Hebrew, that in vain, uh, affects both of those words, or those phrases, cleansing the heart and washing the hands. He's saying doing that in vain, meaning it was meaningless. The whole of the Christian life of serving God is for nothing, since the Christian gets only trouble for his reward, while the ungodly man whose heart and hands are filthy with wickedness prospers. Have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever thought that way of just throwing in the towel, giving up? What's the use? I might as well, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die and follow my wicked friends into all the, all the fun that they have and so on, because I only seem to have troubles in my life in this process of of following Christ and sanctifying and, uh, and mortifying my flesh and so on. But the psalmist realized that this was foolish and ignorant. And he says that later in verse 22. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. But is this why the God-fearing person lives a holy life? To prosper in this life with... Earthly riches and ease? Is that what it's all about? Is that what Christ has called us to? Is this brief earthly life so important to us? Are perishing earthly goods of such ultimate worth to us that we would, uh, that we would forsake the Lord? You know, one might think of the TV prosperity preachers who, that's what they preach. You know, it's this life, your best life now, as one of them says. Have that now, so that you're driving around in a big Cadillac and flying in your own private jet and living in your own mansion and have everything you ever could imagine in this life. And if you're not living that now, something must be wrong. You must not have enough faith. Well, what an abominable lie. So the explanation of these troubles of the godly and the explanation of the lack of troubles of the ungodly troubled Asaph to the point where he he says, you know, I'm about ready to throw it all in. And he stumbled. But this word, too, that he used, chastening or chasten, as I read from the book of Hebrews, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives The the uh, writer Hebrews, which I believe is Paul, says this is for your children. As a good father, God chastens his children so that they will cleanse their hearts and wash their hands in innocency all the more. They must sanctify themselves by disciplining, indeed crucifying or mortifying their sinful nature. They must sanctify themselves by taking their affections off of this earthly life and its treasures and setting their affections on the coming heavenly kingdom and life and its treasures they must sanctify themselves by confessing god's goodness in the midst of their troubles in circumstances of even their, the utter destruction of their earthly life so that they may prove to the enemy and to themselves that their service of god is selfless not for the sake of their own earthly prosperity but for the sake of the glory of God. And should the trouble-free lives of the reprobate, ungodly bother us? We know that God truly cares nothing for them because they are not his children. God is not their father. He lets them go on in their unholy, wicked, undisciplined lives without chastening without the chastening that the children must have. Because in Hebrews 12, verse 8, it says, But if you be without chastening, of which all are partakers, then you are illegitimate. You are not sons. That is a far more scary situation when you think about it. If your life is going really well, you might begin to practice some self-examination. To think, why is everything going so well all the time? And look at your life. Are you following particular ideas, beliefs, practices, behavior that in self-examination would show that they're sinful and you need to repent and seek the Lord and follow him? but god hardens the ungodly in their godlessness by the very prosperity that he gives them and asaph in in anguishing over all of this he said i again i just it's too painful for me to think about this until i went into the sanctuary of god and then under i understood their end. This he says in verse 17. The all-important end. What saved him, what kept his feet from going completely and his, his steps from slipping was his understanding of the end of the prosperous wicked. This is the connection between verses 16 and 17. Attempting to figure out that meaning of the prosperity of the wicked and the troubles of the saints, this baffled Asaph. And he was just anguished by it. And what really baffled him was the seemingly contradiction of it all. That God is blessing the wicked, but cursing the righteous. And that distressed him until... And I love how the Bible uses words like that, like we saw in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, but God, or but now, or this word, until. It's a, it's a major turn, if you will, in thinking in the psalm. In the Asaph makes a complete turn here. He understood their end only in the sanctuary of God. The end of the prosperous wicked, in distinction from their present earthly life, as a way to that end, is their death. Their end is their physical death. As the entrance into everlasting existence, death ushers them into eternity. What is their end? Verses 18-20 through describe it in one word, destruction. Physical death is not for them just the mere extinction of earthly life. And many of them would like that to be that way, where they have their lives here, they die, and they just go out of being. They just disappear. They don't exist anymore. But that's not what the Bible teaches happens, right? Death is but the entryway into eternity, And for the ungodly wicked, death is their falling into the hands of an angry God so that their physical death is the beginning of their eternal death. This is the end of the wicked, not again in the sense that merely it just cuts off the prosperity of their early life, which again for them would be troublesome enough, but death is their end in the sense that their prosperous earthly life Naturally and inevitably moves them towards this end. Their prosperous life issues in this end. It has its, it has this end as its certain rightful goal. Death as its end is inherent in the prosperous life of the wicked. To this end, their prosperity is always bringing them. In this end, their prosperity has its meaning. Unto this end their prosperity is the means. So therefore it is utterly foolish, mistaken, forbidden, impossible to evaluate the earthly prosperity of the wicked from their end. The end of their prosperous lives, their prosperity. Where does this prosperity bring them? Where does God intend them intend that to bring them? And again, we shall examine that more deeply next week. But the same is also true of the trouble in our own lives. If you look at our troubles apart from our end, we will conclude that God does not bless us. Indeed, he curses us. But our trouble-filled lives also have an end. And we see that in verse 24, which we'll consider in a couple of weeks. But that end is glory. So we must view our present lives of chastening and plaguing, not apart from their end, but in light of it. In light of the end of the prosperous wicked, all the prosperity of the wicked is seen to be curse, only curse. In light of the end of the troubled saints, all their troubles are blessing, only blessing. John Dunn wrote, The exceeding weight of glory makes all worldly prosperity as dung and all worldly adversity as feathers. Truly God is good to Israel, to his people, in everyday life, earthly life. And truly God is good to Israel and only Israel in everyday earthly life. And truly God is not good to the wicked, in his burying them in prosperity. Thus, with regard to determining God's blessing and cursing, we may not depend upon what we observe with our physical senses. We must not take our evaluation on the basis of our feelings, how we feel about this. And we even cannot arrive at this truth by our reason if we have our minds outside of the sanctuary. Asaph got his inspired theology by being in the sanctuary of God, the holy place where Jehovah dwelled with his covenant people, above the ark on the throne of the mercy seat. In Asaph's day, the sanctuary was a tent in Jerusalem. That was before the temple had been built. Today the sanctuary of God is the assembly of believers and their children on the Lord's Day. The triune God is present in this assembly, in the preaching of the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ and the administration of the sacraments. There and only there we understand the end of the prosperous wicked. There we are delivered from the dreadful doubts whether God blesses the wicked and curses the righteous in the circumstances of earthly life. There our feet are kept from going, our steps from slipping, supposing that God is gracious to the ungodly and ungracious to us. So why in the sanctuary? Well, it is in the sanctuary, it is there, that the word of God reveals the truth about time and eternity about this life and the life to come, and about the relation between the temporal life and the coming eternity. In the sanctuary, God makes known the unseen things of eternal life and eternal death. In the sanctuary is the gospel of the everlasting, all-embracing grace to all who fear God, cleansing their hearts and washing their hands, as well as the warning of wrath upon all who hate him. In the sanctuary is the message and sign of the cross of Jesus Christ, which has lifted all curse from elect Israel in time and to all eternity. In the sanctuary, the same message of the cross testifies that the curse abides on all who are outside of Christ in unbelief in time and to all eternity. In the sanctuary, the gospel and spirit of Jesus Christ Convince the struggling children of God as they convinced Asaph that truly God is good to Israel. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we do give thanks to you for this truth that even though we can observe the lives of the prosperous wicked and we can observe our troubled, chastened, plagued lives, we know the truth behind it all is our end. The end of the prosperous wicked is eternal death, being under your just judgment of condemnation. But we know our end will be in glory in the new heavens, in the new earth, so that we can declare, as Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote in Romans 8.28, that we know that all things work together for our good, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You have your divine purpose and plan in every bit of our lives, every molecule of our existence. You govern according to your divine decree for your purpose and plan and for your church, for your elect ones. It is only good, eternal good. And we thank you for that. So help us to keep that in mind when we see the prospering of the wicked and their are easy lives, and we are, we see the, the plagues and chastening of our own lives. Help us not to doubt and let our our feet slip, but let us rather look to the truth regarding their end and ours. And we have that, we know, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in our place, in our stead. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.